Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Atlanta author Trudy Nan Boyce brings authentic experience to her crime novels. She served in the Atlanta Police Department for 30 years as beat cop, homicide detective, senior hostage negotiator, and lieutenant. In 2017, she won the Georgia Author of the Year Award for her debut novel, Out of the Blues. Boyce's most recent book is The Policeman's Daughter, her third novel in a series featuring Detective Sarah Alt. When The Policeman's Daughter was released a few years ago, Boyce joined us in the WABE studio. And we'll listen back to that interview later in the program. First, imagine how an actor or filmmaker must feel receiving an Academy Award. That may be what a visual artist experiences when learning that the Metropolitan Museum of Art has acquired one of their works for the Met's permanent collection. Atlanta artist Dawn Williams Boyd found out earlier this summer that one of her cloth paintings will live in New York now on the walls of that revered museum. The artist joins us now via Zoom. Dawn Williams Boyd, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's an honor to be here. Congratulations on this enormous recognition. How did you learn that the Met acquired your work? Fort Gansevoort, the gallery that represents me in New York, uh, sent me an email. And then uh, the owner, Adam Shopcorn, called me on the phone to tell me it was very exciting. Oh, my goodness, I can imagine. I mean, were you pinching yourself? Are you still pinching yourself? No, but I was doing a lot of jumping up and down. (laughs) Well deserved. Thank you. The Met bought the work you titled Sankofa. How would you describe the painting? It is an image of an African-American woman who is treading water in the remembrances of her past and trying to keep her head above water and holding the 
images of other pieces of her artwork above water also. So as you know, Sankofa means to look back at your past in order to engage your future. So she's looking over her shoulder, furiously treading water, and her treading is mixing up the remembrances from her past. So it's a semi-autographical piece. So it has images of my mother, my children, my eighth grade report card, <laughs> and other little pieces floating in the water. And then uh, she's holding images of other pieces of work that I've done above her head. So it is at once this semi-autobiographical depiction, and it is rife with metaphor. Yes, it is. You make cloth paintings with fabrics, often intricately embellished, and these works all convey stories. Would you tell us how you create these cloth paintings? One of the reasons that I call them cloth paintings is that I approach them the same way that I approached acrylic paintings when I was working in that medium. So, of course, you start with an idea, you work it into a small sketch, and because these pieces are quite large, I have to blow them up into a the sketch of whatever the finished size is going to be, and then the image is drawn onto the large sketch. It is drawn again on tracing paper and then drawn again onto the fabric. From there, it's more of a collage type of application. Um, In fact, applique is the term that we use. And then it's drawn one more time with sewing machine. And finally, details are drawn with needle and embroidery floss for the details like the eyes and the lips. Mm, Such an intricate process. How long did it take you to complete Sankofa? Sankofa is a large piece, so on average, the entire process takes about six to eight weeks. Oh. And that's working in my studio six days a week, usually four, five, six hours a day. I don't spend as much time in my studio now in a given day as I did when I was younger. I just I just don't have the strength to do it all day like I used to anymore. Oh, Dawn, I would say six <laughs> to eight weeks for such an achievement is, is an amazing amount of time. I mean, I thought you were going to say me two years to do such a thing. Okay. I'm curious about when your interest in sewing began. Who taught you? Oh, I come from a long line of seamstresses. My mother is or was the elder of four daughters who all sewed their own clothes until they were married and had children of their own. Um, I like to say that I was that little girl on Easter Sunday morning on the way to church in the car who was putting the hem in my own dress because my mother had made my dress and hers and had not had time to finish hemming mine. (laughs) And so 
she left that chore to me. Uh, so I've been sewing a very long time. And look what it brought. What has been the role of quilting and sewing in African-American storytelling? The African-Americans were only able to make art to communicate through art with scraps when we were here in the United States. What we did when we were still in Africa is a whole nother conversation. But while we were here, we had to make do with what was available. So there were scraps of fabric available. There was leftover cotton um, that had not been harvested in the fields, which was gathered and used to stuff the quilts that were made. So it was a survival situation where you had, you were unable to go to Joanne's and buy all the fabric that you wanted. So you used what was available. And many times that was fabric that had been made into something. And then that person grew out of, or you had passed it down X number of times, and it was no longer a viable piece of clothing So you cut it up into pieces and you made something beautiful out of it and something that also happened to be practical because it was going to keep you warm during the winter. So and and so while you're making something that you need, something that is going to keep you warm, you had might as well use it to communicate. Again, as you know, that many times, and I like to use this when I'm doing um, projects with children that talk about the um, Underground Railroad, many times quilts were used as a signal to stay where you are, wait till sundown, come now, come back tomorrow. So they have many, many uses that are not just objects for practical use. They are also objects like mine that you hang on the wall to tell you something that you don't already know, to communicate information that you need in order to survive. Mm. Throughout your career, you have addressed serious subjects, tragic subjects, social injustice, racial violence, misogyny, physical, as well as psychological abuse. How does your art reveal America from the perspective of the oppressed and disenfranchised. They say that the story of the hunt would be different if it were told from the perspective of the prey. So what I'm trying to do is to give the perspective of American history through those persons that are least able to change history, those persons that are affected most by history. African-Americans are, and other peoples of color, are not always in a position to decide what the country will do, to decide how we'll go forward. We just have to try to survive what other people's decisions are. And so I just feel a need to say to show what it's like from the side. American history is being rewritten as we speak. And 
the age of the internet doesn't always give us the opportunity to know what the actual story is, much less what it is from the perspective of the person that it happened to versus the person who did the deed, whatever it is. So I just want to be sure that there are some parts of American history that are not forgotten. I want to show the history of this country and the opinions of people who are not necessarily in power to decide how we go. Yeah. Your new exhibition is on view in Athens at the Lupin Foundation Gallery on the University of Georgia campus. Why did you name this collection Woe? I have very good ideas about what to name my art pieces because the title usually comes to me ahead of time. I have more problems naming exhibits. And so Daniel Fuller, the curator, and I sort of got together and said, okay, what are we going to call this thing? And I was really curious about the pieces that he had chosen because a lot of the pieces are very political. There a lot of them talk about unhappy incidences in the history of this country, both in the past and in the present for that matter. But on the other side, some of them are the most beautiful pieces that I've done that have absolutely nothing to do with American history. Then there is the piece that is on the cover, uh, the invitation piece is Peaches and Evangeline. And it appears to be a very lovely portrait of two young women who are standing and having their picture taken. But the story that goes with it is about their father and their mother who were blown up in their beds on Christmas Eve in 1948. So I was trying to find something, some word, some phrase that would sort of describe both things. And so, as I said, Daniel and I kicked it around And the word woe just really came into my head out of nowhere. And I thought, well, that pretty much describes the history that African-Americans have had in the United States over the last however many hundreds of years that our ancestors and that we have been here. And when you think of woe, it just gives you a feeling of unhappiness, of being so down that you can't see up, of sorrow and of not being able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. When you say that something is woeful, it's like you just can't stand it anymore. You're at the end of your rope. And I think that however hopeful our future is our past. And I'm talking about America's past, not just African-Americans, but America's past has had so many sad, woeful experiences that people of various sorts in this country have experienced. And it, it clicked with Daniel, it clicked with me, it was short and evocative. And so we said, well, let's just call it that. Hmm. 
I saw on your website that you offer workshops with kids, and you mentioned that earlier in our conversation. Why is it important for you to teach what you have learned? I think it's important for children, for everyone, but children in particular, to have an outlet, whether it is sports or music or dance or visual art, whatever it is, because all of us, and especially children who are just learning how to communicate their feelings, all of us have pent up emotions that we need to find a way to release. And art is a way to say who you are. It's a way to say what you want. It's a way to communicate that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to talk to somebody. It is uh, something that you can do by yourself. You don't need to have a group of people with you. You can sit in your corner and you can make art and you can do it whenever you have a spare moment. But it's important for children to be able to get that inner person out. And I think that if we continue to not offer children and a, a way to express themselves that way, uh, some way that we are in for a very unhappy future. I think that a lot of kids who have emotional issues need to be given a box of crayons so that they can say what they're trying to say. And of course, we now know that art therapy has proven very successful. I began our conversation talking about the equivalent of an Academy Award. Will you receive your Oscar, so to speak, when the Met hangs on Kofa in New York? How, how will that unfold? I will be in New York a year from now because I'm having my first New York solo at Fort Gansevoort oh, in September of 22. So hopefully between now and then, or at that time, somebody will tell me, okay, Dawn, today's the day <laughs> that you get to go to the Met and see your piece hung. Atlanta artist Dawn Williams Boyd. Her collection, Woe, will be on view through November 18th in the Lupin Foundation Gallery on the campus of the University of Georgia. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Toward the end of my conversation with Dawn Williams Boyd, she touched on the benefits of children creating art, from self-expression to self-esteem. Art has proven therapeutic for adults as well, and even the simple act of coloring can help reduce the thoughts of a restless mind. Color ATL 
is a coloring book that features the work of Atlanta artists, including Fahamu Peku, Leila Brunet, Fabian Williams, and many more. When Color ATL's co-founder, William Massey, joined me a few years back, he explained why he wanted to share the power of art therapy. A lot of art therapy, um, as artists, we know what it is, the power of art to, to heal the soul, to release all the stuff you can't get out into words. Um, it's just important, that creative spirit. And I wanted to share that. So I was working in cancer centers and homeless shelters, nursing homes, hospice homes, with uh, the process of making art as a way to release the stress in the mind or fear, even to help physical ailments as well. But I could only reach a few people per day. So when I heard about adult coloring books and how sensational they are at giving people access to just the lighthearted creative freedom that we experience so often when we're kids, well, it's important when we're adults too. So it was just a fun way to share the goodness of creation. Uh, and every time we sell a book, we give one away. So it's a one-to-one -one model. So we're at, never at a shortage of donating books uh, to organizations, health facilities, social impact organizations throughout Atlanta. Hmm. Some of the artists have styles that translate very well to mm -hmm. coloring book form. Lila Brunette makes those heavily patterned designs you could spend hours coloring in. Catlanta has a great whimsical mm -hmm. kind of appeal. But were there any surprises for you with some of the artwork that was turned into you? Oh, I'm always blown away. There's always surprises because a lot of these artists don't necessarily work in two-dimensional form with pen on paper or even on a computer. And um, since we, we care about the quality of the artwork and we want to make it as pristine as possible, there's a lot of conversation and curation to make sure that the artists give their best work possible and that this is like a well-curated publication. Um, so we kind of work together uh, to formulate just the, the most cohesive work of art possible. Color ATL goes beyond just putting out a book. You've partnered with a long list of organizations. You mentioned the one-to-one -one giving. Would you tell us more about that? Well, the beauty about art is that it's extremely universal. And the beauty about Color ATL is that it can, it can speak to people in any number of situations. Um, so our, our organizations that we've worked with are all over the map, ranging from organizations who serve um, teens who are homeless all the way to older adults in health and hospice care. Um, the homeless uh, population is extremely large in Atlanta, as we know. So there are a number of organizations who we donate these books to who build community and who help um, give a little breath of fresh air, creative fresh air to people suffering like wherever people are enduring hardship, art can help. William, why do you think coloring has made its way back into the world of grown-ups so successfully? Well, you remember what it was like when you were three, four years old, as you said, coloring? I could tell you the <laughs> coloring books I had. Do you remember the joy? Yes. Well, that's not something that stops at a certain age. You know, that's something that you can 
experience and enjoy throughout your life. It'll look different as you grow older and as you gain new experiences, but that instinct, that primal urge to create, to make something new, there's something good about just moving and creating. And I think it takes away from our joy when we forget that. So I think coloring is coming back because people realize that joy is an important part of life and that when we're kids creating, coloring, goofing off, we are uh, living pretty fully and we need to hold on to that as long as we can throughout life. Color ATL's co-founder, William Massey. You can find more information about the Atlanta Artist Coloring Book on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll revisit my interview with Atlanta author Trudy Nan Boyce about her novel, The Policeman's Daughter. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The author, Trudy Nan Boyce, brings authentic experience to her crime novels. She served in the Atlanta Police Department for 30 years as a beat cop, homicide detective, senior hostage negotiator, and lieutenant. In 2017, she won the Georgia Author of the Year Award for her debut novel, Out of the Blues. Boyce's most recent book is The Policeman's Daughter, her third novel in a series featuring Detective Sarah Alt and it functions as a prequel to the first two books. When The Policeman's Daughter was released a few years ago, Boyce joined us in the WABE studios and started by explaining why she wanted to write a prequel. It's actually the first one that I wrote. Um, So uh, for... uh, publicity reasons, for pu- publishing reasons, for marketing reasons. The other ones came out second and uh, first and second, and this is the prequel. And um, it is the making of Detective Salt. Um, in this novel begins when she's been working a beat um, in the city for uh, about 10 years, and uh, there's a precipitating incident, and things change. They change um, quite dramatically, and um, there are many twists along the way. 
You have said that Detective Sarah Alt, who goes by Salt, is a version of yourself. What do you share with her? Um, I would say that many of her experiences are inspired by the things that I experienced. Of course, she has her own past, and that colors how she reacts to uh, what happens uh, to her, these particular incidents. Um, she has a, a, a tragic past. I don't share that past, so her reactions are different than the way that I would have reacted, but it certainly um, a serves to uh, make things complicated when these series of incidents occur. I read that um, your father was a minister. Yeah. And uh, while Sarah's father was a policeman, um, that there are aspects of your relationship with your father that you do share well, you know, I'm, I'm of an age, and I grew up in the rural South, when the preacher or the minister uh, was the first person called. There was no 911, there, and people didn't involve the police. There weren't doctors or therapists or family uh, people that intervened, but the minister is the person that people called. And so I'm uh, I remember my dad going out to uh, when there was there were domestic violence problems, when there were substance abuse issues. Of course, we didn't use the same words. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I l- went along with him on uh, many of his sit calls when people were uh, bedridden, is what we used to call. How how old were you? Oh, um, uh, that's as long as I can remember, and. Uh, in nor- rural North Carolina, I would have been maybe seven, um, ten years old, seven to about eleven years old when when I began going out with him, and I, I think that colored my interest in uh, in people, or that was certainly had it was a genesis of my interest in people, and my graduate work was in psychology, but also I I think that being uh, called into crisis situations which is really essentially what uh, police officers are. When someone calls 911, they're asking for help in the same way that people would call my dad directly. And they're asking for help in the most intense um, and traumatic moments of their life often. And my dad felt honored and uh, privileged to be able to um, be helpful to people in those situations. Uh, And... I felt the same way. It was really, this might might sound corny, but I felt felt, um, almost a sacred um, opportunity uh, when people ask for help. And in fact, Detective Salt says that. Um, She said she swore a sacred oath Mm -hmm. to serve and protect the poor people in her District. Yeah, she's very single-minded about that in some ways, and then uh, this crisis occurs in her life, and it becomes um, uh, more intense uh, because of her relationship with her father. So uh, it dovetails, and her her father is uh, uh, committed suicide when she was a child, and so in in some ways. Uh, this connection with the community is also an attempt to connect, reconnect with her father and to try to um, 
understand what had happened to him. Trudy, there are remarkable aspects of this story that I found hopeful and um, very eager to discuss with you. The first being, if not the absence of racism among the police officers, at least civility and uh, respect in their interaction on the job. A certain camaraderie. You know, that's one of the amazing things about being, uh, living in Atlanta and uh, working for uh, the Atlanta Police Department, which really reflects the diversity of our community. And so I had the opportunity to work with uh, people who came from a lot of different backgrounds, but we were bonded over our... um, wanting to take care of one another and be with people. You know, uh, I think that we self-select in some ways. If you're uncomfortable with the diversity of the city and with the diversity of the Atlanta Police Department, you don't apply for the Atlanta Police Department. And I think um, that really was reflected in my experience. Not that there there weren't a few troglodytes in the department, but, (laughs) um, you know, but but the paths for redress, if there were... um, somebody was involved with some sort of sexual harassment or hostile work environment. The the um, paths for redress were already established because this is a minority-majority uh, police department and a minority-majority city. And I, I'm incredibly in love with this city. I've lived in town since 1976, and um, I found, I was thinking about that this morning, and I, I found that... W- I was thinking about why is it that this city uh, has felt like home for me for so long. And I think it's because the the ability to find people who appreciate you for who you are, that you don't have to be a certain way, that there is there are people or pockets or communities that will, are ready to say, we like, we like you how you are. It is it, it's very encouraging. This seems a good time to talk about Salt's relationship with her beat partner, whom I know you got a big kick out of calling Pepper. Right. Well, you know, it, 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 when I first uh, found out, you know, imagined what his name was, I thought, that's a little bit corny, or maybe that's a trope to have Salt and Pepper on the street. But it's this, it happened the same way that it often happens in the Atlanta Police Department, that people acquire their, um, their street names or officers require their street names, well, whether they like it or not. So. <laughs> so he was the pepper to her salt. That's right. That's right. His relationship with her is one of uh, almost a big brother, certainly a close friend, and his wife considers her a close friend. They're always trying to fix her up and set up dates for her. But she has this very familial relationship with him. Um, Did you see that sort of relationship when you were on the force? I I saw it and and I I experienced it. You do become um, siblings in some ways. Uh, When you spend eight hours in a car 
when in the projects uh, in the 90s at the height of the crack epidemic um, there were two officers uh, in our precinct who were killed in the line of duty and they were working um, in the projects so they the administration decided to double up the cars and so for several years I did have a partner uh, about three days a week when you ride in a car with someone for eight hours you may not have come from the same place but it you really do establish some commonalities just through the experiences Mm -hmm. so I was fortunate um, in having a partner for a while in Carver Homes who came from very different circumstances that I did but I think we both uh, came to appreciate what each other brought to the table. So that was some of that. And then I had this amazing partner in homicide uh, for uh, about five years. And uh, we were very, again, we were very different, uh, but really appreciated uh, what the other brought to uh, our partnership. Part of that friendship evident in their familial relationship and comfort with one another is there are some little jokes. I mean, um, I I just laughed when Pepper said to her, he was always told why people smelled like dogs. I started sniffing my dog, sniffing my (laughs) forearm. Did you ever hear that? I absolutely did. Those words (laughs) came from a delightful guy and and the similar circumstances. Uh, He and I had been in the academy together and turned out we came out to the same um, zone and we responded one night together to a burglary call and it was raining and uh, both of us of course get soaking wet as we're checking the exterior of the the perimeter of the building and we ran into an under an overhang and he turned to me and he sniffed and he said you don't smell like a wet dog (laughs) I said what (laughs) he said yeah black people say White people smell like wet dogs. <laughs> oh, the, the joys of serving and protecting. <laughs> the other aspect of the story that was so striking and powerful is Sarah's empathy for the people who live in the homes, as you call the project. Uh, dropped the carver. I take it that carver uh-huh. was your template for the home. Absolutely, my inspiration. And and this area was also known as the war zone. Um, would you give us a tour through this area? What it what did it mean to work the third? Uh, carver Homes was the second oldest housing project in the city. Uh, and although Perry Homes was geographically larger, and these all of these projects have since been torn down, but Carver Homes was the most densely populated housing project in the city with about 900 residents uh, in a small area. And um, people um, in who lived in the projects oftentimes were uh, destitute and desperate. And as it was in the the 90s, uh, the drug and uh, gun trade flourished in that area. And so um, uh, Salt and I share uh, this experience of feeling called into people's homes when they were scared or frightened or injured or... um, And needing to offer comfort um, and... uh, safety 
for those people and having them appreciate you're doing that in the moment. However, uh, there is also another culture in uh, and another uh, a, another culture and a trade in the homes that parallels that and that of the the flourishing drug trade and gun trade, mm. and understanding that uh, people choose that because those are the circumstances that they find themselves in, desperate and with no access to resources like people of middle class or upper class. And understanding that uh, the the choices that they make were because of the circumstances that they found themselves in, so it's revelatory to me. Um, and uh, James Baldwin, I, I think, is the it, is the perfect quote is the epigraph in my book, and um, he says, uh, "I'm saying that a journey is called that because you cannot know what you will discover on the journey, what you will do with what you find." or what you find will do to you. And that absolutely uh, reflects my experience both as a police officer and um, as a writer. A good example of that is the character of Little D in, uh, in this book, and he, he, he is in all of the, the series, who came uh, to me as a fairly flat walk-on character, um, the ubiquitous drug boy on the corner with the baggy pants and the guinea gee, and who's obviously selling street drugs on the corner. He came as a walk-on character, a, a trope, a stereotype, but for a writer to be truthful and tell, or, or a truth teller, it's important to walk in the shoes of your character. And so when I put myself um, in Little D's shoes, because I want to write truthfully about him, I came to understand that he, like Salt and Pepper and all the characters, was motivated by yearning. He had a family he wanted to go to. He wanted to have a living and to make a life for he and his child's mother. And so he took what opportunities were available to him through the connections that he had in his community. Like we all do the same thing. We take advantage of what we know and who we know. Atlanta author Trudy Nan Boyce will return with more of our conversation about her novel The Policeman's Daughter in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. If you are just joining us, I'm Lois Reitzes, and we're going to get back into my conversation with Trudy Nan Boyce, the author of The Policeman's Daughter, part of a series of crime novels set in Atlanta, which follows Officer Sarah Alt. Before she became a writer, Boyce worked as a police officer herself in Atlanta. Prior to that, she earned a Ph.D. in community counseling and was the Atlanta Police Department's in-house psychologist. I asked why she decided to move from that position to working on the streets as a cop. My mother asked me the same question. I can imagine. <laughs> she was pretty unhappy with that. You know, I uh, 
after I got my PhD, I was working for the Atlanta Police Department as in-house psychologist. And in that capacity, of course, came into more intimate contact with uh, the officers that served in the APD. One of our one of the things that we frequently did was ride along with uh, police officers and detectives in order to make ourselves available as counselors. And the more I did that, the more I interacted with um, those officers, the more um, I felt uh, a commonality. And uh, I think I had always had an adventure-seeking gene. <laughs> and uh, and about the, that time, the Hill Street Blues was at its zenith. And I said, you know, I think I could do this job. <laughs> I, I come from a really different background. But certainly, um, I said... I'm going for it. You know, I, I, that's what I really want to do. I, I, my middle class background uh, said, you, you can't do that. But um, I, I've, I really, with more and more contact, I thought I could. And, and it served me well. My uh, education served me well uh, because I ended up being a hostage negotiator for the entire time. So I was on call outs. And I have to say that experience combined with my education were really the factors that I think made me effective. People would ask me, well, what is it that you say to people uh, to get them to release the hostage or to come down off the bridge? And I say, it's not so much what I said to them, but that I was willing to be quiet and listen to what they had to say and not try to talk them out of feeling how they were feeling, but reflecting uh, what it was that they were feeling. Not saying that what you're feeling or what you have done is right, but just uh, having, in that particular moment, at that time, uh, empathy for their situation. And this um, brings back SALT's empathy, which seems rooted in the identification. I think the psychological identification she feels with the people in her district, not their backgrounds, obviously her education level, her background was much different, but her understanding of despair. Um, In The Policeman's Daughter, your psychology background is evident in the way you reveal Salt's childhood, which was traumatic, and she's permanently scarred emotionally. She experiences flashbacks, and those flashbacks appear in italics. Would you write about the device to convey those memories? Was was that your decision to put those in italics? I probably didn't know the proper way to do it when I started out, but certainly I wanted something uh, to delineate and to say this is what uh, is coming to her from her past. And I think SALT is not unlike the rest of us on our individual journeys, and that is that when you go down that road, um, you don't know what the experience will do to you. And so I think that... um, it was important for me to uh, reflect how the crisis that she is currently experiencing uh, was intensified by her her traumatic. And I think that's true of all of us. We uh, selectively uh, interact with the world or selectively perceive our interactions with the world based on what we've experienced in the past. Not, you know, we've all had uh, imperfect 
childhoods, and that colors the way um, we interact with our partners and with our colleagues. So the discovery of that and the discovery of opportunities to receive grace from our colleagues and from our partners in unexpected ways is um, something that I was interested in exploring. And it happens for her. Um, her colleagues come to, uh, to come to her aid, ultimately, even though she's put a wedge between herself and others, and as her romantic interest wills, and her partner, they are able to uh, demonstrate to her that, uh, hey, uh, we're here for you even though you've pushed us away. And so that's an interesting, interesting thing for me. Trudy, getting to know these characters and those who police their area reminded me a lot of The Wire, the series by David Simon based on his book. Yes, Um, absolutely. (laughs) When he was, or I should say, while he was a reporter and not a cop like you, both of you provide a vivid picture of how little these poor people have to lose and why drug use, drug dealing gangs, why these are all enticing to them. At one point in the story, Salt has an imaginary conversation with her father, and out loud she says, Ten years now, my first night back, what difference have I made? Is that something you would ask yourself or still ask yourself? Well, it, it, after you... You experience despair. You intervene and you intervene, but nothing ever seems to change. Um, And I think that uh, David Simon uh, was brilliant and Richard Price, they were brilliant uh, in understanding people's despair. But yet there was creativity in the moments and in the dialogue between the various characters in The Wire. And... I think that that's true for Salt and that she recognizes the importance of the uh, connections between people. And in the moment to moment, the big changes may not be happening, but there are changes in individuals, and that's really often all we have. That was Atlanta author Trudy Nan Boyce. You can learn more about her novel, The Policeman's Daughter, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, today, a new program in Atlanta aims to help students get a foot in the door of the entertainment industry. The Set South Production Assistant Training Program offers 15 underserved Atlantans a free education in the film industry. Over the course of four weeks, students work as production assistants on a mock movie set and learn from professionals at the Georgia Film Academy. In a statement, the city of Atlanta said it will push for students to be hired on the 100 or so TV and film projects in Georgia each year. Applicants must be an Atlanta resident, 21 years of age or older, 
be underemployed or unemployed and have a valid driver's license. The first class will start in October, and you can learn more at setsouthatl.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Philip DePoy and Christian Bush join us to discuss the Alliance Theater's world premiere of their new musical, Darlin' Corey. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.